So welcome to the session on the 9th of November. We're in the home straight for the year now. I hope it's been a good year for you all. We can never say, can we? We can never predict what the future will bring. All you can do is do the best that you can in every moment. That's all we have. The only control we have is what's happening right now in the way that we respond. How we perceive and how we respond to the challenges of this life. When all said and done, That's the choice, that's the freedom that we have. The freedom we have is what, how we choose to respond to whatever things come up. So when you evaluate your life this year, what are the, what are the decisions that you've made in how you've responded to situations? What have you learnt from those decisions, the consequences of your choices. This is the this is the learning. This is why we're here. To learn to respond appropriately, compassionately and lovingly, with a established in a sense, full sense of present awareness. Once you get that one down, then it becomes less of an effort, more of a smoother ride. To some extent, one of the, the great teaching is this idea of dropping resistance to situations. The idea of surrender, of acceptance, which is a difficult one when we're conditioned to believe that we can use effort and force to change things. How do we reconcile that? with the notion of acceptance. And the answer to that question is really one of developing discrimination and judgment, sound judgment, clarity of vision and insight. So that we know in those situations when the right thing to do is to act and in those situations when the right thing to do is just to watch. Like today you're in at Audi and a man was suffering you thought he might be dying. And so what happens? You had a spunder, you had a you had a, a pulsation of knowing that the right thing to do in that moment was to go and tell somebody and bring the attention to the man so that he could be attended to. Other times you see people things happening to people and you don't act. Maybe because someone else is there, it's not necessary or not appropriate. But this is the, the idea of being present and clear and empty and not filled with thoughts and worries and concerns is that you, your capacity to act instinctively and, and insightfully and correctly just is there. Maybe that's the lesson, is this idea of just being present. 
no agenda. You tread lightly on the earth when you adopt that attitude. Become less willful. Don't use brute force to resolve situations. This is the art of skillful living. To know. as the intuition develops you're acting out of intuition more than you are out of thinking the problem with thinking is it's like computer programming whatever goes in determines what can come out if, if thought is the basis of your decision making then the quality of the decisions that you make are based on the quality of the thought and the information that's come in if you have incomplete information or incorrect information, then any decisions that are made based on thinking alone are going to be fraught with error because, you know, the foundation for the decision is flawed. Whereas intuition and insight, I think, draw from a higher source of just pure knowledge, that, that the knowledge that knows what to do in a situation is not a product of mind. It's just a product of attunement, being in tune with what the situation requires. And then you start to live more instinctively, less willfully, less mindfully. And they talk about mindfulness. But I think I'm a bit a big advocate of mindlessness. Because <laughs> I think there's too much mind. Mm. Particularly in our society, we're very identified with our minds. You know, it's um I think you can use your mind in a more effective way when there is less thought. Um, but when it's time to use your mind then you can very clearly without obstacles. Mm. When I mean on one interpretation when there is no thought there is actually no mind. Mm. Mind is just one instrument. Like body is an instrument, mind is an instrument. But I think intuition and insight are not products of mind, not in the traditional sense of thinking. And this is the thing that we find very difficult to appreciate because in our culture it's all about the mind, cultivating the mind. More Read more books, gather more information, but really the insight and intuition are, not, are independent of information. I actually, when I teach the do the corporate training, I have a slide that I show, and it's of a pyramid. And actually, it's the pyramid that's taken off the back of the U.S. one-dollar note. I don't know if you know that one, and it's got the eye at the top. Do you know that picture? E pluribus unum. And so it's the eye of knowledge, of insight. But the top of the pyramid's been cut off. The last blocks are not there. And I don't know if I can show you while I'm recording this. Might be possible. If we go and look at the 
US one dollar Okay. And of course, the one they show me is not the one I want. They've done apparently are different versions of this. What do we call that? The pyramid at the back. Okay. There you go. Right. Remember that? So if I can make it a bit bigger, there we go. So you've got the pyramid, and then you've got the eye. It has a name. I can't remember what the eye is called. But my how I use this is I, on the bottom layer, the bottom rungs of the pyramid, I call that data. So it's just raw information, unprocessed. So it's just data points. And then on the, another row above it, I call that information. The information is when the raw data has been processed into a usable form. So it's actionable. Then it, then it becomes information. So if you had um, an example might be the weather readings over the last month. And if you had just had a whole series of temperatures, not organized in any way, that would be your raw data. And then someone comes along or a computer comes along and it systematizes them and it puts them into a table and it says that these are the days and these are the temperatures. So that becomes information then because it's organized, right? And then you can, that's useful. As raw data, it's not very useful. But information itself is only part of the picture, you then need to build on the information and you create another layer above the information which I call knowledge. And knowledge is when you apply the information, when you learn how to apply the information for, a, for an outcome. That is knowledge. You can have a lot of information, but if it's disorganized, and, and not applied in any particular way, then it's just, I mean, it's information overload. You can have more and more and more and more and more information, but it's not, not, if it's not applied in any way, then it's, it's useless, it's just noise. So you want to create, from the information you want to create, you want to process it into a form where it becomes applicable. And that's knowledge. So when you've got a lot of information and you know how to use it, then that's knowledge. But then that's not all. I then postulate another layer above this knowledge and I call that wisdom. And wisdom is, is even more, is a higher level again, because it's, it implies judgment. It implies that you've got knowledge. Now, how do you use that knowledge? When is the appropriate way? When, which knowledge should be applied in which situation? So, for example, if you're a doctor, you might have knowledge of the whole human body, 
a situation comes before you and you have to make a choice as to which knowledge, which, which system, which treatment you apply. So that comes from experience. You develop wisdom and that shows you uh, how to appropriately apply the knowledge that you have. Right, so these are what I call the hierarchy of hierarchy of knowing. But then I say that there is another level entirely different from these, and it's not connected within the hierarchy, within the layers of the pyramid. It's what it's what's happening up here where the eye is. And I call that insight insight. Insight comes from a very different place than all these from than from information. Insight is inspiration. It comes out of nowhere. It's not built on it's not predicated on anything else. So if you're standing in the shower and suddenly you have this idea, a flash or just a knowing, but a deep inner knowing not based on anything you read, but just just a complete uh, light bulb. <coughs> you know, the light bulb goes off in your head and suddenly you've got that, the answer. But it didn't come from reading a book or collecting data or doing a survey or doing any form of analysis. It just came from a higher place, you could say. And the, the yogis say that... Um, all the knowledge of the universe is already contained within the universe. The universe is basically a big giant information system. It can even, all the laws of physics, all the laws of mathematics, whether they're known and discovered yet or not, are all contained within what you could call just the, what they call in Sanskrit, the Akasha. I was just thinking about that, that all the mathematical laws that have, are not known mm. must exist. Yeah, I've talked about that before. Yeah, when we talk about discovery, and I say, where did the laws come from that are discovered? They were already there. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's not like we created. No, the law two and two, two and two equaled four before there were humans on the planet. Right. Mm. Right. So the laws of physics are already present. All the laws of biomechanics, all the all the different ways that chemicals will react with each other are already contained in the field of pure potentiality, which is this infosphere that permeates within consciousness, that is. So, I'll just throw this in. Mm -hmm. I've been doing some study, and a few days I really push myself and I get to five o'clock, and it would become a jungle mm -hmm. in my brain, and I'd think, oh my God, I can't work this out. Mm. It, was, it was just... And to me, at that stage, an unsolvable, unsolvable puzzle. Mm -hmm. And then I'd go home, go to sleep, but wake up and it was all sorted. Mm -hmm. It was like it. Right. How did it all filter in and make sense? Mm. Why, why did that Well, it's happen? getting processed in the subconscious mind. Because I've left it alone. Yeah, you leave it. You've got to leave it. And one of the keys to insight is that you've got to step away from the information. And this is the problem, I'd say, is the problem in our society at the moment, is that we're drowning information mm. in information. And, and because of that, we're losing the capacity for insight. Mm. Because if you don't give enough space for the idea... To, in, in problem solving, traditionally, there's this thing called 
there's the preliminary stage where you do all the crunching, you know, all the, the brainstorming and all the research and all that is still necessary. But then there's a period which we call the incubation period, where you have to step away from it and just let it percolate at some level, subconsciously. It's being organized. And maybe it's interacting with the Akashic field. Maybe that may, I don't know, you can never prove this, but I wonder whether there's some interaction with higher forms of knowledge where it's all it's all starting to crystallize into into something you can use but that would that be because also i meditate more definitely well meditation is the incubation it's the period what, what we were saying where there's no thought where there's no mind is actually a really important part of your day because it's in that void in that silence that the that the space develops that in which the insight can come. And if you don't leave any, you know how people are always filling up every moment mm. with, with music, you know, they, they can't be. But we do get deadlines forced upon us though, don't we? Sure, but they're, they're, that's part of the construct. But there is still... Space in that construct. Yeah, there is still um, discretionary time that you have outside of that where you can either choose to fill it all up or you can choose to keep parts of it empty. And the more that you can keep the emptiness, this is why Nisargadatta in his book I Am That says, don't take on too much. Take on less things, he says, because this is someone that we've just been through this horrendous three-month project of putting together an event. But, you know, that's okay. You can do it for short periods of time, the intensity, but you can't maintain that level of intensity without losing your sanity because you've got to allow the space for the system to restore and the emptiness to occur and the processing to occur. And, you know, if you ever have a big job and you step away from it, it's important to have time to reflect and just to gather the learnings and the insights and the wisdom that you got. And, and that's what experience is. It's being able to extract the gems out of the, uh, the morass of, all, of everything that happened. What are the key learnings, the takeouts? And you need a period of quiet reflection. That's basically what you do. Mm, when I left my, other, my big job, I took five years out. I mean, that, that's how long I took. But it's fantastic because you come back and you say, you can see patterns in things that you can't see when you're in it. Yeah, distance. Mm. So I think um, this whole, the way that we use our minds in our society and we're filling them up, filling them up. You know, our teacher used to say, don't read too many books. He wasn't saying, he wasn't advocating ignorance. But I think what he was trying to indicate was... That, yeah, that if you've, the mind's not like a, like a receptacle with a funnel and you, the more you pour into it, somehow, um, <coughs> you know the better it becomes. Well, even a computer has its point at which you can't keep. You In know. fact, you know, here's a classic case. Kalyani's <laughs> ah, yes. devices filled up with photos. <laughs> and Or you ever have a hard drive that gets so full that it can't actually process? Take anymore. It was going, just stop. Yeah, you, you, there's not enough, <laughs> there's not enough free Space. ROM, you know, in there. You can upgrade the RAM, you also have to increase the processor. Because or, or get a bigger hard drive, because there's just simply not enough free space, which equates to my, what my concept of emptiness I'm talking about. 
you need the empty space in order to be able to process to move blocks of data around. You know that little puzzle that they used to have when we were kids? It was a little square thing. Rubik's cube. No. It's a little square flat thing with numbers that oh, you would yes. push around. It's in a little square tray. Yeah, yeah. And, and there was one space yeah. full, well, empty. Yeah. But you had to get them all. And you had to move them around mm. using the one empty space. Now, if it wasn't, this is a beautiful example. Yeah. If it wasn't for the emptiness, yeah. wow. you couldn't solve the puzzle. So cool. i got to buy one of those. You yeah, could I use, want, if you find one, buy me. I'll yeah, buy one from yeah. I don't know what they're called now, but the number puzzle or something. But that is precisely what I'm talking about here is the need for emptiness. Take the opportunity. If, if you've got a choice between getting some more information or just doing nothing, the, the doing nothing isn't, is valuable. It's valuable. The, the, the downtime is actually valuable. And the, the constant uh, more, 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 this, 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 this is not actually serving you. No, because you get to a point where it's jumbled and you think, what, what, what am I doing wrong or mm. what aren't I getting? You're blaming yourself yeah. for, for being... Sabotaging. Yeah, yeah, like, mm. oh, God, I'm stupid. I don't know what I'm doing. I think <laughs> you, in, a, in a case of information overload, you lose the capacity for clarity and insight mm. and, good, and sound judgment because there's so much noise mm. that you, you can't see the pattern. You have to step away from it. You know, or, but it's addictive too. I mean, you know, society. If you're accessing stimulating, insightful, exciting information, it's it becomes addictive, and you mm -hmm. build on all of those avenues. Mm -hmm. But so more, it's hard to step away from but more is not better. Mm -hmm. It's like food. You need a certain amount of food. A certain amount of food is important. But the too first, much. The third bite still tastes the same as the first bite. It might do, but after the 50th <laughs> bite, <laughs> you know, we suffer from overindulgence. Yeah, too much. And I think we're living in a time where, this is a, a big point to make, but I think that there's, because we don't have religion anymore and we don't have the traditional values of, of breaking down, I think that there's a bit of a void in a lot of people's lives where there's no meaning as much in, in their lives. In the old days before that, you, you either had meaning through the social structure and through the, the occupation that you, were never, you never chose. It was just what you did. I think we were talking about that the other day. Exactly. Everything's so accessible. You just type it in and you can get mm. answers or answers. information. Immediately. Previous to that, you had to go and search for that information mm -hmm. or you were very busy with your day-to-day -day life just to, to survive, to exist, you know. Yeah, but it's a question of, th there's, there's information. There's no shortage, we're drowning in information. Adyashanti says the same thing, remember that quote you, we did like this year? Where he's talking about this dr that drowning in a sea of information does not give you happiness. Yeah. The next thing to know. Yeah. It, but but uh, it's like, I think any form of addiction, uh, you know, too much of a good thing is a bad thing. Yeah. And I think that's the situation. So as yogis, practitioners of the, of the art of stillness, you could call us, 
we appreciate the value of the void, the value of the emptiness, the value of that the empty square without the number in it. Mm. Without that, nothing can function. So I think the key is make time in your day for emptiness. If you have a choice between doing something and nothing, ask yourself, is the something so important that if you didn't do it, you'd be any worse off? I mean, I get like this, I think we all do with the internet, that one thing, question leads to another question, to well, another you, you question. You put a question in, but in 10 minutes, I've often got to say, what was I asking? Exactly. Because you've already gone off on a tangent exactly. and you're reading out, so oh my God, what am I here for? And you know, you can spend hours in the day going down rabbit holes. Yeah. And what have you... Dreams like that, there's a going to bed and then, what, 3 a.m., uh, still here, finding the gestation period of the giraffe or something. Yeah. Like but you've read everything else about it, but you still yeah. haven't got that in. This is the phenomenon of hyperlinking created this problem, right? Yes. But if everything's linked to everything else, uh, then you can go in any direction. Mm. Uh, but there's no discipline to it. It's just, it's actually, a, um, it really is an indulgence to do it that is just mind food, mind candy. Mm. Mind candy. Hijack. Yeah. Mm. Whereas I think, you know, if you want to really understand who you are and 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 gain a degree of control over your life, over your state, then you're not going to achieve it by those practices. They're just a distraction. Mm. And so I was going to the point that we, in lives that are becoming bereft of meaning, we, we look to fill that void through food, through, you know, uh, mental stimulation, mm. content. Sense. Anything, sense pleasure, yeah. We're just using that to fill the gap. But we know that ultimately it's not satisfying. Because if it was, we wouldn't be continually on that treadmill. Mm. You, you would say once would be enough, but it's never enough. Mm -hmm. It's a temporary mm. So just test yourself when you, next time you go on a frolic on the internet. <laughs> Information frolic. <laughs> or a binge, um, ask the one question, find the answer and then leave it. Because otherwise... But you don't know that you've lost your track until, until you go... Yeah. I know, but that's... What am I doing here? But that's, the, that's my <laughs> test. This is the test See for you. See if you can answer the question without getting lost on the test. Yeah. It's the present awareness of purpose that is... The, the mastery of the game. Otherwise, the game's controlling you. Yeah. Right? You're not controlling the game, it's controlling you. You get sucked into this, this vortex mm -hmm. of then, what then? What then? And then, then, and then, and then. And it's like the mind loves it because it's, it's immersive. Mm. But and, you get nothing else done. But nothing. But, but okay. when you walk away from it, it's like eating a packet of potato chips. At the time, every chip's fabulous, but at yeah. the end of the whole packet, you think, I really shouldn't have done that. <laughs> now I feel sick. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's, I, feel sick I think. It, oh, well, <laughs> now I've created the else. desire. Yeah. Of, 
I guarantee we'll all go and buy a packet of potato <laughs> chips now. But that's that's the key. And you know, in when they make potato chips, they're so putting. They make them addictive. They do. They use MSG oh. and flavor enhancers yeah. and all that. And it's actually there must be so much science in the understanding of what oh, it's that flavor, the fifth flavor of umami. umami. And the crunch, that yeah. crunch. It's thing. the umami yeah. that does it. <laughs> So, so um, I think that we've identified that um, in an information society, it's the umami of information <laughs> that is not our friend. It turns into a tsunami. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, yeah. a good, that's a good set. You better put all that on a card. A umami. umami. Don't let the umami become the a tsunami. tsunami. <laughs> nice work. That's interesting how we know all this mm. and we keep going back. No, oh, I know. That's a good, very good point. That's a recog oh. that's the recognition of the sea. Recognition. Yeah. In, therefore, we, we recognize. So, somewhere we already know yeah. the answer. But the it's answer, the, the answer of enjoyment that the addiction of it. Minds. Yeah. 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 Mm. Anyway, so I guess the point, the take-home point from this is try and substitute some things for no, no thing. Mm -hmm. Because it's in the emptiness that you get direct access to the insight, mm -hmm. which is what we're really after, actually. Mm -hmm. We don't know, but we're really after just the pure knowledge of what I need to know or to do right now mm. and it can't be obtained through you know this analysis paralysis mm. overthinking that you overthink it and it leads you to false conclusions mm. because um, if your only source of knowledge is just the mind's process then it's only as good as what's going in and also what your capacity to analyze which isn't perfect as well but let's say you've you don't really have the judgment or the prior skills to be able to weigh the information so this is the other problem that, that, that when you have wisdom so you've moved up the pyramid you know how to weight assign value to this information versus that information if you don't have that, you, if you weighted all information equally, then you would have very poor judgment because you don't know which things to discount and which things to accord more significance to. This is another thing. The information doesn't come bearing a little tag that says, now this is, this is more important than that. So only wisdom can tell you that because in the past when you've used the information you found that it was not applicable or limited or inaccurate then next time you go well i'm going to be careful about using this piece of information i mean do you see all the weather forecasts the different apps there are mm. like and and the, there will be some that are more accurate than others that's an example of that and it's only through prior experience that you learn that i trust this one more than i trust mm. that one that's an example of that wisdom coming from experience and then you you can discount so if you say well this app says that it's going to rain and this one, three, three other ones say it's not, then it's more likely that it's not. 
but so this is where judgment comes in so I think um, the idea that not all information is of equal value is an important thing to understand as well some information may be true but it's still but it's valueless it's true but it's not it has no worth right yeah and then there's information that isn't true you know in yeah fake news and see if you're basing decisions on false information then it can only lead you to a false conclusion and so how do you know if it's true or false how do you how do you assess how do you determine that see so we're living within an infosphere and the minds are all joined together and we're all in this communal hallucination basically aren't we we're all in this we're all we, we've got language that enables us to agree certain things so we're all so that means that we can share our hallucination because I can say do you see what I'm seeing and so we all convince ourselves that we're all seeing this. do you know the story of the nine blind men and the elephant yep. so there's there's an elephant and these nine blind men are brought up to the elephant and each one is asked to identify what it is and the first one approaches and he puts his arm around the leg of the elephant and he goes oh well it's clear this is a tree this is a tree and then another one comes up and he grabs onto oh, he holds the side of it and he goes no no this is clearly a wall and then another one goes around the back and grabs onto the tail and he goes no no it's a rope and then another one comes around to the trunk and he says, oh, this is a snake. And then another one, and, and they're all grabbing onto different parts of the elephant. And they're all arguing about what it is that they're, mm -hmm. they're apprehending. And because not, none of them have the complete picture, yeah. they can't agree mm -hmm. on what it is. So they're all with the exact same thing, mm -hmm. but they're all... Nine different nine different interpretations of the same thing and that's a really profound metaphor because aren't we like that i mean we're not blind but in some senses if we have incomplete knowledge of a thing then we're never going to accurately assess what it is and what its value is so the idea so from my position i'm seeing mostly purple flowers mm -hmm. Right, and if we held it in a certain way and we couldn't see the other flowers, you would swear, we would swear that we're looking at two different things. Mm -hmm. But it's basically from a higher viewpoint, it's a vase of flowers. I mean, you can generalize it, mm -hmm. but if you want to be specific, then you need, you need to rotate the vase so that you capture all the information and only then can you make an assessment of what it is. So I think that's the, the caution in this world, in this time of information overload, is to be very judicious and selective about what you feed your mind and how you use that information, remembering always to leave enough space for there to be nothing 
to leave the emptiness because it's the, it's really in the emptiness that the power of the information can be revealed it's only in the emptiness it's only by stepping back that you see what things for what they are anyway that's uh, how do we get on to that talking about judgment ah the space, yeah, insight. See, we've gone down a rabbit hole. Oh, I think the subject chooses itself each Saturday afternoon. Mm. Whatever what our needs need, are. <laughs> need to hear at that time, I think it just arises. Mm. It's like when you open up that book and you let it open and yeah. there's what you need for the yeah. day. Yeah. I love doing I'm that. always I'm amazed so by that. Yeah. <gasps> oh. <laughs> Well, that's a lesson I must need today. <laughs> I'm just going to see whether we can find. See, this is a really good book. He's Nisargadatta. He's this guy here. Was a saint that lived around the same time as our teacher. And I'm just going to go get my glasses. But I want to give you a little bit of a. Um, preview into his, his world view and he was very um, strong in the belief that um, we shouldn't be deceived by appearances and so I think uh, the general point he makes is that um, you know that what is real so that's the question. So within the context of this discussion, what is real within the infosphere? What is real? What is illusory? What things should we be paying attention to? Which things should we ignore? And, and if you open the book and point there, you'll Yeah. And Sailor Bob bases oh, a lot of... Yeah, he's a big follower. So Sailor Bob gives us a very... Um, more of a processed version of this that's a little bit more gentle. Nisargadatta is going in and he's completely ruthless. Like he, he just cuts away all the beliefs that are false and just hits you in the face with, with statements that are absolutely true, but they're very confronting for people that are very identified with their mind and their body. And he's, he's there and slapping us around and saying, well... Um, Here's an example. The questioner goes, Maharaj, you are sitting in front of me and I am here at your feet. What is the basic difference between us? And Maharaj says, there is no basic difference. And the questioner says, still there must be some difference. I come to you, you do not come to me. And, and, and Sargadatta says, because you imagine differences, you go here and there in search of superior people. But you are a superior person. You claim to know the real, while I do not. Did I ever tell you that you do not know and therefore you are inferior? Let those who invented such distinctions prove them. I do not claim to know what you do not. In fact, I know much less than you do. So this is nice. I know less than you. This is where he's, he's having a... But your, wise, your words are wise. Your behaviour noble. Your grace is all-powerful. And he goes... I know nothing about it at all, and I see no difference between you and me. My life is just a succession of events, just like yours, only I am detached, 
and I see the passing show as a passing show, while you stick to things and move along with them. Beautiful. Isn't that great? Mm. Well, what makes you so dispassionate? And he goes, nothing in particular, it just happened that I trusted my guru. He told me that I am nothing but myself, and I believed him. Trusting him, I behaved accordingly and ceased caring for what, what was not me nor mine. And he goes, why, why were you lucky to trust your, your teacher fully while our trust is nominal and verbal? And he goes, who can say? It happened so. Things happen without cause and reason, and after all, what does it matter? Who is who? Your high opinion of me is your opinion only. Any moment you may change it. Why attach such importance to opinions, even your own? And he goes, well, but you are different. Your mind seems to be always quiet and happy, and miracles happen around you. And then he goes, I know nothing about miracles, and I wonder why, whether nature admits exceptions to her laws, unless we agree that everything is a miracle. As to my mind, there is no such thing. There is consciousness in which everything happens. It is quite obvious and within the experience of everybody. You just do not look carefully enough. Look well and see what I see. So this is amazing. He says, there, as to my mind, there is no such thing. He's saying, I don't even have a mind. There's just a succession of events we call thoughts. There's no such thing as mind. What's mind? It's an invented concept. There's just thoughts. They come and go. I'm just, but I'm not any of those. I'm the consciousness that that observes. See how um, uncompromising he is? Whereas Sailor Bob would say something like, um, I'll, I'll get you something from Sailor Bob. He's, he's, he's a gentler version. I was with him this year in Melbourne. If you're ever in Melbourne, you should go and go around. He has a, a little thing like this on Thursday nights. So the book's called Present Awareness. Just this and nothing more. So that's pretty much it. That's the entire teaching. Yeah. Present awareness. Just this and nothing more. He wrote, he's, he's got, um, he's a bit shaky. He wrote to Peter, who is already that. So here's a, here's a little thing he wrote on, um, well he, he was, these are just recordings of what he was saying. If you happen to grasp what I am saying now, that is inquiring, because you are seeing where it all seemingly started from. You are seeing that there is no I there that ever could do anything. From that time we started to reason, everything was acquired in the mind. It was all acquired mind from then on. This is actually relevant to what we've been just talking about, knowledge. Through the acquisition of thoughts, words, images, ideas, and putting labels on things, or conceptualizing, we built into, onto the I am, which is the basic underlying state, we built onto that events, experiences, and conditioning. Alright, so he's saying from the moment that the mind started working as a child, it builds, it overlays on top of the pure I am, which is just the pure state of being, 
events, experiences and conditioning. We formed a mental picture about ourselves, a mental concept of what we believe ourselves to be. So what he's saying is that we're just a concept in our own mind. We've created this concept of ourselves. Um, a mental concept of what we believe ourselves to be. Instead of having no reference point whatsoever, which would be natural function, the natural functioning, we form this reference point or, or the ego or the self-center. So it's saying you've got a central point of reference that you're continually relating back to to compare everything to this concept of self. Everything from that time becomes relative to that. That's when you start to believe that you have done this or done that or I am not good enough or whatever it is. But it is only a mental image. It has no power. Look and investigate now. See that it hasn't got any power. It has no substance of its own. Try and grasp that I thought. I. Say it to yourself. Try and grasp hold of it. Try and make something substantial out of it. So what he's saying is just take the concept of I and look at what that is. And you'll see when you delve into it that it has no substance. It's just a, a thought. The thought of I. And then the, the, the questioner goes, Bob, um, do these things because that is the only way you'll see. I know. The, Bob's saying you should do this as a practice and that, that's the only way you'll see is to go in and unpack this idea of who, what is the I. So and the question that goes, well, we almost exaggerate it. And he goes, yes, because you'll find that it has no substance. Above all, it has got no independent existence. How many thoughts can you have if you have no, if you are not conscious or aware? None. So it can't stand on its own. There is no I or me that can stand it by itself apart from consciousness. It's really only happening or an, it's a happening or event in consciousness or awareness. It has no reality. So then he goes on and talks about the conditioned mind and all, all that stuff that we were talking about. So these, these guys are really falling into this idea of examining the mind, examining what, what you consider to be self. And, and, and then the more that you inquire into that, you see that it has no substance. And so why go around defining yourself according to something that has no substance? has no independent existence other than it's as a concept. Mm -hmm. And so then and then if you pursue that path, eventually it leads you to the conclusion that the only thing about you that is real is your present awareness of what is unfolding in this moment. That is the only reality. So this is this this is a school of philosophy called Advaita, non dual. Advaita. There's no separation. Everything is just appearing within consciousness. And this idea of limited self is just a concept. This idea of separation is just an overlay. Anyway, this is pretty heavy stuff. I mean, Advaita is pretty, it's sort of like they're shaking you and saying, wake up, wake up. And, and people find that pretty confronting particularly if you've spent your whole life investing in this belief of who you are as just a concept. 
and suddenly someone comes along and says, but you're, you, that which you think you are isn't even real, you go, what, what are you talking about? What do you mean I'm not real? <laughs> well, who is the you? And he loves that word persona. He says persona is the, is the Latin word for mask. Persona is a mask. It's the, it's the image that you project to the world. Yeah. So he's saying we're all wearing these masks. Rumi, Rumi says throw off your mask. You have a beautiful face. Mm-hmm. It's very profound. It's profound. But the face that Rumi's talking about and Isn't what... Isn't the one that we no, It's about. just present being. Present awareness, yeah. Present awareness of being is that's who... That is our real state. And all the rest is just a projection that we've taken on, that we've cultivated. You know how people cultivate an image? They've got an image. That's, a, that's their mask. And you could go to another... This is one, one reason I think I like traveling is I can, you can go to any country where people don't know you and you can actually adopt a different persona and no one knows that it's not you. I, I don't really do that, but I'm just thinking that you could. I mean, this persona that we carry here is sort of pretty ingrained and everyone expects that you're going to behave like Brahman. But if tomorrow you started just to throw that off and become like, uh, I don't know, in, intoxicated in, with the bliss of your own being. People go, but, but what happened to you? Where's the Bron we used to know? And you go, that was, just a, that was just an act. That was just an act. You know, the, the symbol for acting, they've got the two masks, the happy mask. and the, So we're putting on masks, projecting. What will people think of me? Is that is that that's the game of the persona? How do I want the world to perceive me? Is the game of the ego? Ego, that's ego's game. I want people to think I'm successful. I want people to think I'm intelligent. I want people to think I'm beautiful. I want people to think all those things, and we work hard to try and turn that projection into a reality because we falsely believe that that's who we are and if the world doesn't accord doesn't support that notion of who we are then we feel very challenged by that imagine that that you work so hard to look beautiful but no one thinks you're beautiful or you work so hard to be successful and then you lose it for success you know you've invested how much investment do you have in your persona? That's the question. How much have you got invested in the... And how much have you got invested in the thing that's behind the mask? And what these guys would say is you should be putting more effort into knowing what that is because that's your reality. And you should be putting less effort into this because that's, it's not real. Interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Once you know that, the eternal present awareness, and you're content to rest within that, whatever happens out there is sort of less important. Mm. See, so we're, we're um, 
re-evaluating the things that where we should be investing our time and our effort and our awareness to the things that are enduring and this is where he comes out with this statement on the cover of the book this is how you know committed he is to this idea he says that the real you is timeless and beyond birth and death the body will only survive as long as it's needed it's not important that it should live long just a really interesting idea he's saying you're not that anyway it's just a projection within consciousness that will be there that the real you is eternal and can't ever die so know that become that be uh, uh, what's the word established in the knowledge of yourself as eternal and then whatever else happens out here is not that important it's not real when the yogis talk about real and not real they're not trying to make a distinction between um, uh, what could be validated by the senses and invalidated by the senses. So if we use the word real or unreal, we tend to think of real or unreal as uh, whether it's tangible or whether it's an illusion, right? But they take a different view on real or unreal. Their view of real and unreal is that if it is eternal and unchanging, it's real. And if it's temporary and mutable, then it's not real. That's their view of reality. Mm. So, you, you, you know, therefore, the body is not real. Thoughts are not real because they're not eternal. They're just a temporary movement within consciousness. It's the underlying consciousness that's real. Because it's like saying that the ocean is real, but the waves are unreal. Because the waves come and go, the ripples come and go, but the underlying ocean will, is, is changeless in the sense that it will always be water. It will always be there as that form, or, or as that underlying phenomenon. But the things that occur, the changes that occur within it, in the yogic sense, are not real because they're transient. So, well, let's wrap all that up. Let's tie it all up, put it in a box and put a bow on it. And we're going to call it... The present. The present. Uh, what, what we're talking about... Yeah, that's very good. Uh, <laughs> it's a gift. Uh. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> It keeps on giving. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's really a question of where do you want to invest your time and effort? Mm. If we want to sum it all up, that the real value is in the investment in time and effort into those things that will be reliable and there always. Mm. And know that. Invest in your knowledge of the self, in the eternal self, that's money in the bank. That can never be taken away from you. You can lose your house, your, your, your flawless skin, your uh, reputation, all of those things can go. But if you are entrenched in the notion of yourself as this eternal presence that is in all things, then you can never lose that.
And I even say, I think, you know, when you see people that have Alzheimer's and dementia and they've lost every memory and every thought and that, I think, and, and I, you can never prove this, I don't think, but I think there is, they are now retreating back into just pure awareness. They're just, they're like a baby, you know when a baby's, newborn baby's lying in its mm. bassinet mm. and it's like this, they're just in pure awareness. They don't even have language mm. that they can start to label. That's a mobile, that's a window. That, mm. they're, not, they're not even there yet. They can't, if you don't have language, you can't form concepts, mm. actually. So you're just sitting there going, mm. not doing it. And then your mother comes and you see a face and there's some joy. And after a while, you start to make associations and all that. And then mm. mind is beginning. But still there are no words and so it's hard to conceptualize and so i think in these states where there is no mind whether it's in the infantile state or in the mm. demented state, state mm. that that what when you erase all of the thought what you're left with is just awareness unless you're unconscious mm. like if you're comatose or something maybe mm. but even then maybe there is some awareness as well. So I think that the key point for all of this is just spend time in getting to know that state. Mm. That's a really good thing to do. And that's pretty much it. Fantastic. Thank you, Peter. Yeah. I hope that was recording. I think it was. Yes. It was. Mm -hmm.